On this Christmas morning, we celebrate the coming of the Christ, the anointed one. That's what Christ means, the anointed one, the Messiah. This Messiah came to earth in the form of a child whose name was Jesus, which is Hebrew for God saves. Remember that the angel Gabriel gave him the name Jesus as his proper name because it, was, it expresses both his identity and his mission, that he was the one that came to save. And since God alone can forgive sins, it is God who in Jesus, the eternal son, came to save his people from their sins. In Jesus, God fulfilled and restated all of his history of salvation on behalf of men. Christmas is about what's called the incarnation of Jesus. Incarnation meaning the act of being made flesh. This is called the kenosis. And in John 1.14 it says this, The Word, the Son of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When you strip away the season's hustle and bustle and the trees and the cookies and the extra pounds, and what, remain, what remains is a humble birth story and a simultaneously stunning reality, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. This incarnation, God himself becoming human, Remember, God becoming flesh is a glorious fact that is often neglected or forgotten amidst all the gifts and the get-togethers and the pageants and the presents. Therefore, I think we would do well today to think deeply about the incarnation on this day. We are here today to sing about and more importantly, sing to and worship our God who came to us. See, Christianity is not like other religions where man is trying to figure out how to come to God. But it is about the reality that God came to us. So I want us to quickly consider five truths about this Christ, this Messiah and Savior, Jesus. First, the incarnation was not the divine's son's beginning. The virgin conception, the subsequent birth in Bethlehem, does not mark the beginning of the Son of God. Rather, it marks the eternal Son entering physically into our world and becoming one of us. Theologian John Murray writes this, The doctrine of the incarnation is destroyed and impaired if it is conceived of as the beginning to be of the person of Christ. The incarnation means that he who never began to be in his specific identity of the Son of God began to be what he eternally was not. I know, ponder that for a moment. Way too early in the morning for that, right? See, he began to be what he eternally was not, which was flesh. The Son has always existed within the Godhead, within the Trinity. No beginning, no end. He is pre-existent. He was not created in some way in order to become human. 
Consider Philippians 2, 5 through 8 as Paul is challenging us to be like Christ. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was not in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But listen, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see the connection between the, the birth and the death of Christ. He emptied himself. See, he was God. Before the beginning of time, he was God. And he emptied himself of that, and he took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient to that. Do you see it? He always has been, and he continues to be. This is the Christ that we worship today. Second, the incarnation shows Jesus' humility. Jesus is no typical king, is he? Jesus didn't come to be served. Jesus came to serve. His humility was on full display from the beginning to the end, from Bethlehem to Golgotha. In that same Philippians passage, Paul glories in the humility of Christ when he writes that though he was in the form of God, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ's union with us in the incarnation, his identification with us in the incarnation is the foundation for our union with him both now and in eternity. It is a pledge of our sonship. John Calvin wrote this, our common nature with Christ, that humanness, is the pledge of our fellowship with the Son of God. And clothed with our flesh, he vanquished death and sin together that the victory and triumph might be ours. He offered as a sacrifice the flesh he received from us that he might wipe out our guilt in his act of atonement and appease the Father's righteous wrath. See, he took on our flesh so that he can offer himself as an atoning sacrifice. I love what C.S. Lewis's word pictures. And he paints this picture of the humility of Christ this way, in a way that only Lewis can do. Lying at your feet is your dog. Imagine for a moment that your dog and every dog is in deep distress. Some of us love dogs very much. If it would help all the dogs in the world to become like men, would you be willing to become a dog? Would you put down your human nature, leave your loved ones, your job, hobbies, your art and literature and music, and choose instead of the intimate communion with your beloved, the poor substitute of looking into the beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to smile or speak. Christ, by becoming man, limited the thing which to him was the most precious thing in the world. 
His unhampered, unhindered communion with the Father. Do you see the humility of Jesus in becoming flesh? The incarnation wasn't the beginning of the divine son. The incarnation shows Jesus' humility. And third, the incarnation fulfills prophecy. The incarnation wasn't random. It wasn't accidental. It was predicted in the Old Testament, as we read earlier, and in accordance with God's eternal plan. Perhaps the clearest text predicting the Messiah would be both human and God is in Isaiah 9-6 that we read earlier. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In this verse, Isaiah sees a son that is to be born, and yet he is no ordinary son. He has extraordinary names, doesn't he? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. They point to his deity. And taken together, the son being born and his names, they point to him being the God-man, Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer puts it this way, the divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises. Needed to be fed and changed and taught to talk and speak like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. That the prophecy fulfilled was fulfilled in a little baby who had to be taught to speak. Also, the incarnation is mysterious. Have you ever thought about the fact that the scriptures do not give us answers to all of our questions? Some things remain mysterious. Listen to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, Moses wrote. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are secret things that belong to God. Answering how it could be that one person could both be fully God and fully man is not a question that the scriptures focus on. The early church fathers preserved this mystery at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. They wrote this, that Jesus is recognized in two natures, God and man, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of nature's being in no way annulled by union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance. Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't these very truths, if we're to be honest, isn't the only way to believe them is by faith? You see, that faith is in an inscrutable God who does not and cannot lie. 
but faith nonetheless, since it is so very far outside of our understanding. Do we get it? Do we completely understand to the nth degree this coming of God in the flesh? It's by faith that we have to step into this truth because it's a mystery that we cannot know and understand. That's one of the ones I want to ask the question about when we get to heaven. Explain this one. Because all of human history depends on this, doesn't it? This is what our salvation is based in. That God came in the flesh and died for us. And he gave his life. He lived a life, but from a baby. Think about babies. There are some in this room, right? They're not taking care of themselves. You have to take care of them. They're doing messy things. They're making noise. And I think back to that quote by C.S. Lewis. That in a sense, it would be like us stepping in to the form of our favorite pet to save all pets. And number five, the incarnation is necessary for salvation. It's mysterious. It shows Jesus' humility. It fulfills prophecy. It proves and shows that the Son has always existed. And it's necessary for our salvation. The incarnation of Jesus does not save by itself, but it's an essential link in God's plan for redemption. John Murray explains it this way. The blood of Jesus is blood that has the requisite efficacy and virtue only by reason of the fact that he who is the son, the stunningness of the father's glory and the express image of his substance became himself also a partaker of flesh and blood and then was able by one sacrifice to perfect all those who are sanctified. See, he came in the flesh for a purpose so that we could know the Father, so that we could be righteous, so that we could be changed. The author to the Hebrews writes this about Jesus in Hebrews 2.17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The incarnation. On this day that we celebrate it. Is way more than a little baby. It is what had to take place. It displays the greatness of God. Our God is the eternal God who was born in a stable. Not a distant withdrawn God. Our God is a humble, giving God, not a selfish, grabbing God. Our God is a purposeful, planning God, not a random, reactionary God. Our God is a God who is far above us and whose ways are not our ways. Not a God we can put in a box and control. And our God is a God who redeems us by his blood, not a God who leaves us in our sin. Our God is great indeed. Amen.
he gave his life for us so that we could live. And in the elements of communion, we see and taste and are reminded of his sacrifice for us. In his death, you see, because if you come to live, you come to die. In his death, he gives us grace, his unmerited favor. And in these moments that we will have together, taking the elements of the bread and the wine, we should sense his grace anew in our lives. As we examine ourselves, as we're told to do in light of this grace, we are reminded of his humility in offering us salvation. You see, he didn't have to. He didn't have to offer us salvation. We are sinful. He is holy. But as we say yes to his sacrifice for us, we are made holy because of him. And for anyone who does not know him, who is not assured of their relationship with him, then we're told that the taking and the eating of these elements bring judgment upon you because you do not know this Christ whose blood was shed and whose body was broken. For those who know Christ, these elements are a deep and abiding remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us as we partake them. We celebrate today the Christ of Christmas. And the Christ of Christmas is the Christ of the cross. Can you imagine? You see, at the moment that we celebrate the birth of the Christ child and the angels sing out, think about what they say. They say that peace has come. Now, I don't know if those angels knew exactly what was going to happen, but the father did. You have to, if you're like me, you wonder what he thought at that moment. Because in that moment of the birth, a sovereign God saw the moment of death, saw the moment of sacrifice, saw the pain and the anguish that would come. And so today we, we take the bread and we dip it in the cup. And let it remind you of his sacrifice for you. Some of our elders are going to come now and we're going to serve these elements. And as you take them this morning, think about the baby who was born to die. And then... Because this is Christmas and it's a little different, I want us to do this in gratefulness, not just for his broken physical body for you, but for the building of his new body, the church. You see, the church is called the body of Christ. I'd encourage you to go to someone else here after you take of these communion elements and in thankfulness for his church. 
Go to someone else and take a moment and pray for them and for them together. You know, he left us here to do this together. To take this good news, to take the Christ of Christmas, the Christ of the cross, to others. We say here at New Life that we're to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. This is a chance on this Christmas morning to preach the gospel to ourselves. That Christ came and he was born and he lived a perfect life and died as a sacrifice for each of us and then rose conquering death. You see, the father saw that too, didn't he? That the ultimate sacrifice would bring the ultimate gift. The gift of bringing his creation back to himself. So take a moment there, and as you feel ready and prepared, come and take these communion elements. And then we've left ourselves more than enough time to pray with one another. Father, we take these elements today. We take these representations of the body and the blood of Christ. And we are reminded of the sacrifice, not that began on a painful hill of death, but in a moment in a stable. as God became flesh. And we are grateful in Christ's name. Amen.